2: Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast, I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, the government's latest salvo against the BBC, Ofcom's new powers over online harms, and how the death of Caroline Flack has thrown the nature of online discourse into sharp relief, plus the million-pound movie studio coming to Reading and the future of multilingual podcasts. And in the Media Quiz, how many Julians does it take to run a newsroom? It's all to come. In today's media podcast. And joining me today, MD of something else, Steve Ackerman is here. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ollie. Uh, fresh from signing up with Sony Music. Indeed. Explain how that deal came about.
3: Uh, how did it come about? I mean, we we got into a conversation about podcasting, and, and I think uh, for those following the scene, they'll know that Sony Music have already done a number of deals in, in the space, uh, you know, a couple in the States and one here with Renee Richardson, friend of the show. Renee Richardson, exactly, is now part of the Sony stable. Um, so they're investing in podcast businesses. Did yeah. they approach you or did you approach them? Well, we uh, we approached them, but actually not not with this sort of agenda. So, so we approached them for a different sort of discussion and it, it ended in this place. And after many months of talking, we've ended up with a, a really, you know, a really fantastic partnership that we're, we're really excited about and i mean i've just come back from the states from meeting lots of the key people there and and uh, uh you know what uh, sony are doing is very very impressive and also we welcome back from
2: uh, edelman senior analyst and host of the primarily 2020 podcast karen robinson hello karen hello ollie um what is it that you think we brits need to understand about the race for the white house at the moment that perhaps we don't
1: um, it's a mess, but I think you probably know that. <laughs> um, yeah, things are things are. Um, in a in a chaotic state, as much as it seems very up in the air at this moment. This is kind of where we're supposed to be in a weird sort of way, because it's the moment in the primary where everybody finally gets serious and starts attacking each other and, and really digs in. So um, it's going to be another couple of months before we actually start to do the thing we're all here to do, which is drive all that fire in Donald Trump's direction. I don't know so about it's you, Steve. a painful to. moment. I, I
2: just sort of feel the same as I did last time round when it came down to Trump and Clinton, mm. which was basically just kind of feeling seriously? Is this the best they've got? Like, Is this literally, I mean, is the richest country, is this the best you've got to go up against Donald Trump? That's kind of how I feel looking at it at the moment.
1: Well, I can't agree with that. I think we have some fantastic candidates. But You're I, Bernie
2: Sanders' woman, right? I am
1: not. Bernie Sanders' woman. Oh, okay. no, 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 I don't have a candidate. I'm generally, genuinely in quest of a candidate. Um, I, I think it probably not giving anything away to say I'm not Team Bloomberg. I will say one thing from a media point of view, though, would be great to work on a campaign that had Bloomberg-style budgets. I mean, the one thing that's fantastic is they can trial every media activity they want to do. You want to do some... They're doing meme meme buying. They're doing in-game video advertising. They're doing all the TV buys you want a Super Bowl ad. Like, What a wonderful playground to just be like, you have an unlimited pot of money, play around with it, see what happens. That's fun.
3: I- Um, You know, I've got to tell you, as I said, I was just in the States and uh, in 24 hours of being in LA and probably turning on my hotel TV five times for five minutes at a time, I saw his advert literally in every ad break. I've never seen anything like it.
2: Except that sort of feels like a failing now, doesn't it? Because the whole point we're told of modern day advertising is that they wouldn't be targeting Steve who's a foreigner visiting and doesn't have a vote they're going to be targeting particularly democrat candidates can be targeting women people of colour that's who they need
1: yeah well they're buying everything I mean they, if there's a TV anywhere in America it's playing a Bloomberg out right now and I think last night's debate is the first time we actually got a look at him as a candidate right the first time we actually saw Mike Bloomberg um, as a politician what he would look like if he were um, the presidential nominee or the presidential candidate and I think he did not live up to the uh, efforts of his media buying team.
2: It's kind of extraordinary to think, Steve, isn't it, that if Bloomberg does end up being president, you'd have a media magnate as president of the US and basically former journalist being prime minister of the UK.
3: Well, I suppose it's just symptomatic of where we are in the information age, and and uh, and look, I mean, also obviously for America, it's all about have you got deep pockets, and and Bloomberg's going credit. I mean, I mean that's that's the one thing he's, I suppose, got going from against Trump is if you're going to take on Trump, you've got to have a, a, some really deep pockets because he's got some big big backers now, hasn't he?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he's he has said that he will spend his money no matter who the Democratic nominee is. So I'm uh, I'm hoping we um, we we dispatch him from the field quite quickly and start spending that money on any one of our. other they are much better candidates.
2: Okay, on with the agenda at hand, uh, but not really moving on from politics because we're going to start with the latest UK government threat to the BBC and the appointment of yet another culture secretary. This is our 10th in 10 years, uh, Oliver Dowden. Uh, Steve, tell us first about the rumours that the Sunday Times were reporting on last week regarding the BBC.
3: Well, I think what what you're referring to is the story that said, uh, I mean, obviously, there's the story around the BBC going to a subscription model. But I think this story was really about scrapping, in effect, all of the radio stations apart from radios three and four. Um, And I don't know whether it referenced other services in terms of social TV. But I mean, just how farcical, because, you know, code for radios three and four is, is uh, radio stations MPs like mm. and the nonsense around all of this is the so-called people's government willing to uh, scrap the stations that actually reach far more people than certainly Radio 3. I mean Radio 4 I think is maybe in a different case. When you look at the spending per head of Radio 3 and you would say you would keep that but you would lose something like 6 Music which is actually so vital to the British music industry and and and, and the service that does uh, to our economy in terms of, you know, you know, a major export. So, I mean, it seems to me that a lot of these stories are floating around and we kind of go through this every, you know, five, ten years or so with the BBC and really I do wonder if we're really going to end up in the same place as ever, which is, um, you know, the rearguard action is starting to happen. I'm starting to see a few stories coming out in defence of the BBC, which clearly needs needs to happen. And therefore, um, you know, the first shots are being fired, I suppose, let's put it like 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 that, but I'm not sure really how much credibility there is in an idea that you you, you would scrap all these stations. I mean, Radio 2, Europe's most popular station, are you really going to risk seeing what happens to the public when they understand that that's being turned off? Mm.
2: Or are you really going to say there's not a public service justification for BBC Local Radio or for a lot of the BBC News website? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But the depressing thing, Karen, is that it is cyclical, isn't it? It would be one thing if, yeah. you know, every 30 years this discussion was had. I mean, fair enough, it is a taxation that pays for it. But it's every time there's a Tory majority. That's what's so boring about it, I think.
1: Yeah, well, I think I mean it's it, the notion of taking any of these changes to the BBC is, is horrific on a number of levels. But one of the ways in which it's horrific is that, and and that you know Tories should care about is um, as an, a notion of national pride. I think British people don't necessarily fully appreciate how admired the BBC is internationally, and they certainly have a public service remit in this country that is that is given. Um, BBC World Service is obviously a fantastic thing, but I do think it's just that. I think the people around the world look to the domestic um, consumption of BBC um, products here in the UK, and they are envious, admiring and respectful, more so even than for other treasured British institutions like the NHS. Um, so I think it's it's short-sighted in that regard. I also think that the um, the red herring of talking about how um, they should move to a subscription model is just exactly getting it the wrong way around, because there is so much excellent subscription-based television and broadcasting right now, Fantastic stuff. I mean great work to the people of Netflix, Sky's doing a lot of interesting things. That is not a model that is needed. That's not a, a market failure that needs that needs populating. The BBC is filling a market failure, and in doing so, it's raising all the other broadcasters out there. The quality of, for example, TV news in, in Britain in general, across the commercial stations, not just the BBC, is much, much higher than in other Western democracies, even you know, with whatever problems the BBC might have. And that is primarily because the BBC has. Set a standard that everybody else is is trying to get to. Um, so, I would hope that the impact of this would be a um, a rising kind of campaign of appreciation for people genuinely actually starting to value the BBC. So maybe it will have a more durable um, kind of groundswell of popular enthusiasm behind it that people will actually understand. Because I I think that is going to happen. I think there will be a huge backlash if they try. It,
2: it is really interesting that you think about that from the point of view of what a conservative voter might think. Mm. Um, Because that does seem to be the piece of the puzzle that's maybe missing from the strategy. It's clear that Boris Johnson and his mates don't particularly like the bloated nature of the BBC as it is now. But, uh, I mean, for example, to take what you do, Steve, I mean, I know you've got more into podcasting these days, but the BBC are your biggest radio client, right? So you're an independent radio production company, amongst other things if they go, you'd lose business. That's not something a Conservative party should be supporting.
3: Well, uh, I mean, that's definitely true. Uh, I'm not sure it's necessarily the public's role to ensure that I've got a business as much as I love having the BBC as a major... No, but if you are a Tory a MP, player. you'd think about that. Well, I, I'll, tell you where, I'll tell you where I do think that applies is when you look at the um, fantastically uh, strong role that... Uh, the British TV industry plays within the global marketplace and that was very much fueled, obviously 20 years ago by the way the BBC and to a certain degree Channel 4 could, uh, you know public money was used to support the development of the independent production sector and where we are now in the audio space is exactly that same moment where obviously we've got a rising global podcast industry led by the US but with the UK in a really vibrant place and the BBC is a public service broadcaster and the role that they're trying to develop for BBC Sounds and the funding they're doing for podcast has a ha, has actually a phenomenal phenomenally powerful role it can play in helping to develop a global commercially vibrant proud British industry that that can play a role around around the world you know great British export in exactly the same way TV has played so so I do think the BBC from a commercial perspective or sort of a business perspective has has a clear role there I think it's really valid to question. Every you know to question some aspects of what the BBC does, it you know it, in in a world going forward, does it need to necessarily do everything it does now? And it is obviously valid to question how it might be funded and to have a debate around that. That's that's okay as well. But clearly, a subscription model is, in my mind, a non-starter because you know once too many people opt out, you haven't got a BBC. And I think I think you're absolutely right, Karen. It's it's a it's a world beater. But um, you know, it seems to me that what always happens is the government starts from its most aggressive position Mm. and then obviously, it's like a classic negotiation, isn't it? And that's what's happened with this story initially. But then then last time that
2: happened, we ended up with the BBC taking on, paying for the over 75s and that was pretty disastrous for them. So even if it is a negotiation strategy, it could end up in quite a worrying place.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, there's no doubt that what the government is doing is putting on a tester here to see how much they can put away with. And the reason why I think the BBC is potentially more vulnerable this time than in other times is because if you look at the wider political context here, it isn't just the Tories having a bash at the public sector broadcaster. Um, In the last election, it became very clear that the left also has a lot of issues with the BBC, and they're also quite happy to have a bash at at, at the BBC. Um, And so I think the feeling that the government might have is that maybe there's an opportunity here in this polarized environment that they can squeeze the BBC through the center and that they won't be defended as staunchly as they, as they might have been in the past because maybe um, both sides are seeing the BBC as being, as being biased. Um, I suspect that that probably won't be the case, but it is true that um, politically the BBC has become much more of a hot button issue on both sides of the, of the extremes of the political debate. And I think that's where the real political vulnerability is coming in for them.
2: And do we have anything to say about Oliver Dowden as our new culture secretary? Uh, Oliver who? Yeah, it yeah. seems
1: fine, I guess. He's, he said nothing, know.
2: basically, about anything DCMS in his political career yeah. publicly, as far as I, I can tell. I wasn't
1: able to learn anything about him that was interesting enough to remember. <laughs> <laughs> it is
3: interesting, though, that John Whittingdale's back in through the back door, though, isn't it? Under him. Yeah, and and, uh, Whittingdale's BBC agenda has always been very, very clear. So I suppose let's see how that plays out. Actually, something I can say about Oliver Dowden, because he's my local MP.
1: Okay, go Um, on.
3: So I'm aware of what he
2: campaigns on locally in Hartsmere. And he is very staunch, as you'd expect for a Conservative MP in Hartsmere, very strongly on preserving the green belt. And one of the big decisions, it seems to me, he's going to be part of uh, on both sides of his brief soon is this huge studio that Comcast want to build in Boreham Wood Um, locally, you know, yeah, okay, there's jobs, but they're going to be building that on a field. You know, it is currently a field with glorious green views in either direction. But as culture secretary, he's going to want to support the the film industry. So that'll be a really interesting one to Mm.
1: watch. Squeezed.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, I've tried to find something interesting about Oliver (laughs) Dalton. And sticking with the political approach to this, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Labour candidate, says that the BBC chairman should be chosen by the public or BBC staff rather than um, by the government. Is that of interest?
1: I mean, sure. <laughs> I mean, I think Rebecca Longbilly, um is running a, a Labour leadership competition and she wants to say a thing. So I guess that's a thing. I'm not sure how well thought through that position is. But um, I think that it is worth saying... That thinking about governance for the BBC is 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 well worth doing, and I think you know there are certainly changes that could be made at the top. I I don't think that the notion that we can depoliticize that by having it become fodder for the leftist candidate in a leadership leadership contest necessarily works out. <laughs> I think let's wait till the leadership I, contest I, is over and then have some thoughts about what would be sensible.
3: I think that's a. Ridiculous idea. I mean, I really do. You know, this is an... I don't know how many staff the BBC's got, but how many tens of thousands of people. It's a proper serious Mm organisation. The idea that the public would vote for someone to to lead it, uh, or even... You know, you have a democratic vote internally. This is, you know, this is, you know, this is not the way serious organisations are run. You need people with proper leadership capabilities. Um, and it seems to me, with Rebecca Long Bailey, you know, you know, as per the uh, as per the Corbyn camp, she seems to be taking an approach of, of spew out as many policies as quickly as she can yeah. uh, to try and appeal to as many people. And this is another one of those just ridiculous yeah. ideas. She
1: just wants to say a thing. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Well, you
2: see, I, I think the problem here is that you know we're being a bit ambivalent to some of it and a bit ambiguous about some of it. And the issue with kind of transient politicians is that they're trying to change an institution which isn't transient. It's been part of the British fabric for nearly 100 years now. That's where the tension feels odd, isn't it? You know, these come-by-night culture secretaries come in and try and shake everything up. And actually, there's an institution that works fundamentally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't stop politicians from ruining things that are broken. They can still do that, but uh, I think at some point, you know, the 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 institutions push back, um, and and I think in the case of the BBC, they have phenomenal capabilities to remind the nation how good they are. I mean, I know they can't politicize themselves, and they obviously can't advocate themselves for themselves as any other organisation would. But I I think they're the voices of the BBC might find ways of being heard.
2: Okay, Uh, On to the dark side of the internet now, uh, or at least the dark side of the bit that isn't the dark web. Uh, As the government announces plans to appoint Ofcom as the regulator for online harms... Uh, Karen, what do we mean by online harms in this context?
1: Uh, people bullying each other on social media and yes. driving each other into suicide.
2: <laughs> yes, and terrorism, abuse, illegal content as well, which is illegal. Child anyway. pornography,
1: which is already illegal, the bad things that happen on the internet.
2: Right. What do you make of, of this idea that this could be off-comes-remit?
1: The, the division between social media and and mainstream media are artificial at this point anyway, because they interact with each other too closely to be separated. So I think from that point of view, um, it, it's... It's silly to try and keep them separate when clearly they interact with each other. I mean, you know, in the Caroline Caroline Flack story, for example, um, although a lot of horrible things happened on social media, it was the mainstream media that was mostly driving the things that, that, that led to the situation we wound up with. Um, so I, I don't necessarily fundamentally object to the idea that Ofcom might have a role in social media. But the announcement that I saw did not give me any illumination into how they would approach that. I mean, this is one of the hardest problems to solve. Um, Twitter, Facebook, Linga, YouTube, the platforms themselves have been really struggling and really failing. I mean, some may say they haven't been trying hard enough, but when they try, um, they found it very difficult to get a grip on this problem themselves. I'm not sure that a regulator who has less control um, will be able to be effective in such a fast-moving market. And Ofcom, when they regulate, it tends to come after the fact. It takes a long time. Mm. There's investigations. like And it will be a fine. And it will be a fine. And three years later, it will be like... Of tens of thousands
2: for organizations that have billions.
1: Yes, it turns out that YouTube video was abusive. Mm. Pay $10,000. Well, by that time, the harm is done. It's long past. People have moved on to six other things. So I don't think it's a solution to the problem. I don't think it's necessarily horrible on its face, but it's not going to fix... I th- what's
3: broken. I think I'm right in saying though that the government announced this and then literally a couple of days later rode back from it and said, Oh well actually we're we're now just thinking... because the you know the social media platforms pushed back, they immediately then said, Okay, well we're just gonna we're we are just going to we we have not quite come to a conclusion yet. So that there was a big announcement and then they and then they rode rode back from it. Well it's I'm, a
2: white paper, isn't it? So yeah, it can be interpreted. I mean, and I mean, they've said that Ofcom are gonna be the regulator. That's all we know really.
3: I mean, I think what's definitely true is that clearly our laws have failed to keep up with with the way our media has evolved, and 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 to be fair to the internet uh, giants and, and to the social media platforms, they keep saying, uh, "Listen, we're 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 open to to you know to some sort of re- regulation if you know if you want to have a discussion around that." Now, I don't know how open yeah. they really are to that, but the point is that at the moment it does seem we're in a slightly bizarre place where, when you think about eyes and ears, uh, depending where you consume that, depends obviously on how that is or isn't regulated, and that that you know surely what matters is is the end point, which is the eyes and the ears, rather than how it's reaching you.
1: I mean, you're right. Mark Zuckerberg came out this week and made a big statement saying, basically calling for regulation. He was saying, regulate me, European entities. Um, But in some ways, to what I was saying before, that's a little bit of an easy out for him, isn't it? Because they can't regulate him in a way that, would genuinely constrain his business because he can innovate faster than they can regulate. Um, and having regulations in place allows him to point to them and say, well, we are complying with all of these regulations. Um, what you need to do is you need to change the culture in these organizations. You need to change um, the, the people who work in these organizations, their understanding of what their mission is. You need to understand, you need to change um, our culture as a society. This is a bigger conversation that's going to take a lot a lot more engagement from a lot more people. And right now it feels like everybody's trying to offload it to someone else.
2: And you mentioned Caroline Flack a moment ago. Mm. Um, Steve, what do you think the reaction to her death will mean for the media? I mean, because as Karen said, there's kind of two branches to it, aren't there? There's people saying, this is about bullying on social media and other people saying, no, this is about tabloid intrusion. Is
3: it both? Or do you think one outweighs the other? Well, I think it is both. But again, when we talk about regulation, uh, I think my... My, one of my reactions to this story was when you look at the obviously the terrible conclusion it it came to. Um, this really goes back to lots of the issues that were explored around Leveson, mm. and when and when the whole hacking crisis and the investigation into the press came, and obviously how they fought back from being from having an independent regulator. And we're kind of in the same place with the tabloids and and people like the Daily Mail as we were. Ten years ago, when all this when all this stuff exploded, except it has much more profound consequences because when you layer on top the the, the impact of social media yeah. feeding off uh, the news stories from the newspapers, um, it can have the sorts of impacts that it's that it's that it's led to. Can that be put to good use? Do you think, Karen?
2: I don't want to reduce Caroline Flack to just a sort of poster child for for change, but I suppose in a sense, you know, you had Millie Dowler ten years ago, and having Caroline Flack, having an example that everyone can relate to suddenly does kickstart the debate again around hacked off and what happened after Leveson and press regulation in a way that it kind of it needed someone to do.
1: I don't know. I was having a conversation about this with some colleagues earlier. It feels like in every generation we chase a young woman to death, right? This is this is not new. Um, and whether it's social media or whether it's the tabloids, I mean, I was talk, thinking about, you know, was it 2007 when we all watched Amy Winehouse die? Um, and you could see that that was where it was going and the media was right there every step of the way. Um, you know, I I want to get into whole Princess Diana thing, but there's a whole Princess Diana thing. Every once in a while, we hound a young woman to her death as a culture, and that doesn't feel like a healthy place for us to be. And we often talk about this as if it's as if it's a celebrity thing, as if it's we're hounding celebrities off. This I think the big change with social media is that most young people are now celebrities within their social circles, and actually, you're starting to see some of the same things that we've seen in the Caroline Flack incident, et cetera, happening at a at a society wide scale. and young people are suffering higher rates of depression, anxiety, um you know there are there are some really very serious mental health crises coming up for young people who are interacting with their worlds online in, as if they were all mini celebrities within their mm. school world, and you know within their friend circles, etc. You know you're seeing things like young people who are um, putting Instagram posts up. Um, they'll have multiple Instagram po- Instagram accounts because they don't want to put not their best content on their public ones so they'll like test uh, this is a trend we've been looking at with young people who will test their their photos in a closer friend group before rolling it out for the wider as if they have a media strategy like they're you know like they are a a tv presenter that doesn't feel like a healthy way for society to operate and i'm not sure it's something we can regulate out of
2: but there is some personal choice too isn't there i'm certainly not victim blaming here but i'm just saying i mean Billie eilish came off social media this week didn't she and talked about that you you can't you don't have to be. I mean, I know people make it sound like you absolutely have to be accessible to your fans all the time if you're in the public eye, but you you don't have to.
3: Well, that that may be true for celebrities. I think for young people, it's very different. I mean, you know, as the father of teenage kids, uh, there is a huge social pressure, and 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 you know, I'm I'm pretty sure in 50 years' time, the, social media is going to be the sort of smoking of 50 years' time. I think we're going to because obviously yeah. this generation of kids are the first generation to come. To come through this and I think we're going to look back and say how the hell did we let our kids get into that position or, 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 or any of us you know why you know how, how did we not understand what was happening because look how our society has changed so quickly in the past 10 or 15 years as all of this has, has evolved and I you know somehow I think I think I think Karen's absolutely right that there's a cultural recalibration that somehow has to take place and maybe in a small way Part of the Caroline Flack incident mm. is it just starts to get that dialogue going. This whole be kind thing um, is maybe just just the start of that dialogue.
2: And that whole be kind thing you refer to is what's been on the sponsorship bumpers all this week on Love Island's transmission instead of a Just Eat ident. Uh, has that done enough to try and detoxify this scenario? Do you think that there are going to be implications for the programme moving forward?
1: I mean, implications for the program. I think the the program has problems that go well beyond this particular incident. So this is not the first um, person from that show that has come to an untimely end. This Mm. is not...
2: But then there's no suggestion that this actual incident was related to anything to do with Love Island.
1: No, no. But I think, you know... (laughs) But
2: people have made that connection nonetheless. Eamon Holmes, I saw, tweeting on the day Caroline Flack died saying... Oh, this will—you know—surely this means an end for the show. I mean, I mean, the does show, it?
1: the show's a media juggernaut, and it will probably carry on. I can—I can only assume just because that's how—that's how the money rolls. But. Uh, um But, you know, it's it's a very popular show. But I think what people are watching when they watch the show is the fascination of toxic social interaction. And that's exactly what we're talking about here is that's what's happening on social media. That's what happens on the show is people watch people behaving badly to each other um, in quite a public forum. So um, I'm I'm not surprised that that generates ratings, (laughs) but I'm not usually a fan of the show. You may be able to tell.
2: What do you think, Steve? Do you think? I mean, if if you were an executive working on Love Island, what could you do?
3: Well, I think. Look, I mean, I think the the challenge for Love Island is, um, it, you know, this is basically um, this is a cut down version of Big Big Brother with just the conversations around romance and love and who's with who and all that just sort of thing. Just the sexy bits. It's just the sexy bits. Yeah, layered on top with all the social media interaction. And obviously, as you know, lots of the people who appear in Love Island are already influencers or already have some sort of so social media presence. Uh, so that's really, I think, the challenge for the producers of Love Island that, you know, if this was 15 years ago, we'd just have the TV show. The challenge is we've got this layer of social media conversation that takes place on top and, and clearly there is a duty, duty of care to the people who appear. And look, I mean, ITV are responsible broadcasters. I You know, I, 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 I would not believe that there are people at, at ITV or Love Island who don't take seriously the responsibilities that go towards the people who are now appearing on this show. And, and obviously, difficult lessons of been learnt but I'm not sure necessarily anyone could have anticipated that in the same way as no one necessarily anticipated the, the terrible events around Caroline Flat. we're all learning as we go along because we're in uncharted territory but we've
2: talked a lot about the vulnerability of contestants on these shows it's quite interesting if that duty of care then is supposed to extend to presenters as well because you might argue by its nature someone who chooses that as a career is likely to be vulnerable we've all worked with talent who have issues. That's one of the reasons that makes them compelling broadcasters. Can't really mitigate against that.
1: No, you absolutely can't. Um, and it's not, at the end of the day, your employer is not your babysitter. It's not their job to constantly reassure everyone that you're fine. Um, and I think, again, a single, a single program can't solve what is fundamentally a deeper social problem that we have as a society. Um, And I think, but I think we have a tendency to consume people as entertainment and forget that people are people. Um, And I think that's, that's something that we just need to, all of us, reckon with a little better.
2: Okay, we'll be back with more media news after this.
0: Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus.
2: Spiritland Studios are run by Spiritland Productions, providers of professional audio solutions to TV, radio and online. As well as their broadcast-standard studio facilities, Spiritland Productions also has a world-class OB vehicle for audio and video projects of any scale. Whether it's podcasting, outside broadcasting or live concert recording, produce your next show with Spiritland Productions. Go to spiritlandproductions.com now. Welcome back to The Media Podcast. Karen and Steve are still with me. And let's talk about streaming now as BT have scrapped its traditional pay TV packages in favour of a more flexible subscription model. So, Steve, this is basically BT copying Now TV, isn't it? Really?
3: Yeah, I, I, and and I think it's I think it's the right move. I mean, the way people are consuming, you've got to be flexible, as you say. Sky have got Now Now TV, and that's proving increasingly popular. Uh, I think this is this is the right way to go.
2: So, you want to watch a football match? You can subscribe for a month, then take it off and get the movies instead, and there's no contract.
3: Well, now, I mean, now Now TV, you have the ability with football to subscribe for a day. You can literally just choose that that which I've done. You know, I want to watch a particular game. I'll I, I'll pay the whatever it is, seventeen seven ninety nine, I think it is, or something, or four ninety nine, and you know, watch watch for a day. I think, you know, it's all about when you think about all of our media consumption. It's about um, it's about putting the the listener or the viewer in charge of what they consume. Except the difference here, as far as I can work out, Karen, is that Sky TV have carried on carrying
2: their traditional packages at the same time as offering Now TV at a price which doesn't really compete with the main packages. So if you watch a lot of sport, for example, it's still worth getting a year-round package. BT have ditched all of their traditional packages and they've just said if you've got BT Broadband, you can choose flexibility. Yeah. Does that give them an advantage?
1: Well, I think it comes back to what I was saying earlier about the BBC. It's like you have to think about what's the market niche, right? And I think that a lot of other subscription services have, you know, so Netflix is, if you think about how many subscriptions each consumer is likely to have, they're not going to take, 10 different subscriptions. If you've got the Disney Channel, you've got Netflix, you're doing Amazon Prime, etc. There comes a point where people have maxed out. So I think it's very interesting to say actually we're going to claim the niche of genuinely on demand just as much as you want for as long as you want it. Um, If you assume that other subscription models will be capturing the kind of constant uh, constant 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 heavy-duty users, and then they can say, okay, here's another piece of work over here. The challenge they have is how do they bring people back? How do they make sure that they're producing the kind of content that people actually will check into? Because what's, what's what's what could easily happen is that people subscribe, people log in for one thing they happen to want. Um, how are they going to drive people back? How are they going to make it feel a little bit more, not necessarily habitual, which they don't necessarily need for this model, but frequent? Um, so I think that's the marketing challenge. But I think as a, as a way of filling a niche or creating 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 a niche for themselves, I think it's not a bad way to go. And as you say, putting the user in control, it's what people say they want. (laughs) People don't always know what they want, but if you ask them, most people would say that's what I want.
2: And with this ever-increasing demand for content comes ever-increasing demand for production facilities. So let's talk about uh, the story of uh, the Thames Valley Science Park, uh, unlikely location for a massive new movie studio, Karen.
1: Is it unlikely? Why not? Where should it be? Why not there?
2: I guess <laughs> Reading is just that little bit far out of
3: the greater London area where traditionally people build film studios. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, Elstree, Pinewood, these places are not exactly uh, yeah. in, in a London. But and- Reading is further.
1: Yeah, well, but Reading is where Microsoft is based. A lot of tech, quite a lot of tech All right, go Reading, go for it. Go I'm,
2: not, I'm not. I'm just. It was my. I mean, instinct. don't
1: get me wrong. I personally don't want to live in Reading, but for, but for but there is a lot of there's a lot there in terms of existing talent. There's a university. There are tech firms that have a lot of um, tech alumni living in the area. So um, I think it's a pretty it's a pretty sweet spot. And obviously, the real estate's going to be cheaper outside there than than it is in in, in central London. And
2: it's pretty near to Heathrow. Mm-hmm. Ah, there we go. I knew there'd be a reason. So the executives can fly in, go and check. Well, out and, the stars, and the yeah. stars. So I should say this is Blackhall Studios, which are a big American film production, well, base company, that are building a huge studio in Reading if they get planning permission. Um, £3.6 billion spent on film and TV production in the UK in the last year. It really is a boom, isn't it, at the moment?
3: Oh, listen, I mean, it's a massive industry. And, and uh, you know, again, we were talking about... Uh, Uh, this country having confidence in terms of the BBC, I don't think this country quite understands its standing within the creative industries within the world. Uh, You know, when you think about uh, our TV production sector, our music sector, our audio sector, our, our filmmakers, you know, we are a fantastically creative country with amazing, amazing talents. And that's why why the film industry, the Hollywood film industry, wants to make stuff in. And obviously, it is cheaper as well. That helps. But there are fantastic practitioners here. That's basically the Mm. point. That's really it, isn't it? They
2: want to be sort of close to the M25 because that's where all the best you know the boring stuff is where all the gaffers are and the grips and the whatever whatever prop makers and all those things you don't understand when you see their names in the credits. Good
1: blokes, yeah, <laughs> and ladies, <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. It's this is where great people are, and I totally agree with you. Um, Britain punches above its weight to it to an extraordinary degree in the entire cultural landscape, um, and they should they should be genuinely proud of that.
2: Okay, let's look at radio now. Uh, News UK's Talk Radio tried and failed this week to avoid a £75,000 fine for breaching impartiality rules. Uh, Karen, what was the story?
1: Well, George Galloway um, apparently failed to uh, create balance when he was talking about the story of uh, the Russian poisonings in Salisbury. Um, But the the piece of it that I found the most delightful was that the argument the broadcaster made was that they shouldn't be fined because no one really listens to the show anyway. It's very unpopular we only have a few thousand listeners, and it would harm us financially for you to impose this fine, to which the regulator's response was, you're owned by News Corp, we're Mm. not too worried about you. So it was really interesting to see... Well, that probably
2: kind of worked, because the fine was 75000 so 25000 for each objectionable Galloway thing. (laughs) That probably is slightly less than it might have been if Ofcom were ruling on a fine for talk rate... for Talk Sport, for example.
1: Yeah. Well, they came out and they, I think they said something like, we've only got about five to seven thousand listeners. I was a bit
3: shocked by that, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yes, I think it was a little bit more than that, wasn't it? But it was, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was between
2: 8,300 yeah. and 10,800 listeners, George right. Galloway used to get. I,
3: those I, I was a bit I was a bit surprised about that. But look, I mean, ultimately, they're entitled to mount some sort of defense. <laughs> but it feels like one of those scenarios where the lawyers are sort of grappling at straws <laughs> into how can we try and uh, work our way out of this? And clearly it didn't work.
1: It was beautiful, though, how it could completely undercut their marketing message because Talk Talk Radio's marketing message has been we're the fastest growing station, this is where the conversation is moving to and then in the courts they had to go nobody listens to us anyway, we're really not very important, don't worry.
2: <laughs> and that tension is important in light of the launch of Times Radio, of course also being put forward by News UK, Steve, and they seem to have budget there to hire people like John Pinar coming over from the BBC.
3: Yeah, and uh, and I think in, in some of the stories uh, that I've read you know today uh today presenters or other sort of significant names have also been um approached i mean it's it's a really it's a really interesting move because um i mean clearly radio four is the crown jewel for b b c output and frankly why shouldn't a commercial broadcaster think that they can also move into that uh, territory uh, News UK have deep pockets. It's it, it's been made very clear how important they see audio uh, uh, within their ongoing strategy. I know that you know my understanding is Rebecca Brooks is taking personal charge of 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 the audio strategy and the push into radio and podcasting. So uh, this seems this is this seems an understandable move and and and. You know, in terms of speech radio, until podcasting happened, we only really had Radio 5 and Radio 4 and LBC, and and, and certainly a few years back, LBC were not really the sort of player they are now. And what we've learned through podcasting is there are multitudes of different ways of attacking speech audio, and what you would hope with... Times Radio, is that they will find their own voice, you know, a way to do intelligent speech, but in their own voice that isn't Radio 4 or Radio 5, but is something that is very much a news UK tone. And I think, I think that's fine. I mean, it's good to have a market. Were you surprised that John Pienaar was gettable,
1: Aaron? Um, a little bit, only because he's such a legacy at the BBC. He's been there what thirty years now, yeah, or 28, something. I think, yeah, yeah, so um, he's such a huge legacy at the BBC. Having said that, I thought it was interesting in the announcement and how he talked about um his great admiration and respect for the Times brand. So I think it was, um, it's a it's a legacy of how a, a really strong media brand in any enterprise, in theory at least, they can get a hearing from credible people, um, when they move into a different media outlet. Um, so you know, Times Radio might be a new thing, but of course, the Times as a brand. is is, you know, hundreds of years old and well-respected in its field.
2: But here's the thing, Steve. I don't know how the negotiations happen internally, but Pienaar announces that he's leaving, and bang, he's gone. He's done his last show. Pienaar's politics is over. Goodbye. Not the deputy political correspondent anymore. Farewell. Stig Abel, meanwhile, friend of the show. Hi, Stig. Uh, (laughs) He is coordinating Times Radio for News UK. And he still gets to present front row on a regular basis. What's that?
3: I have to say, I too saw that in the story, and I don't quite understand that because certainly, um, if uh, you know, certainly you know, I don't understand why you would put on here someone who's your who's your competitor. Yeah, you know, I I I can't as someone who runs a commercial business, I can't comprehend that mentality.
2: But they both are and aren't. They're doing both, aren't they? I mean, I know the controller of five live is separate to the controller of ready four,
3: but. There's obviously not one consistent message on this. Well, look, I mean, I mean, each of the networks run independently, and that's, and that's a good thing. But I suppose the bottom line is I'm not quite sure why you're, why you're giving prominence to someone who's setting up a rival brand to you and trying to steal your audience. And do you think, I mean, it seems
2: like they're sort of replaying the trick from Virgin. I guess John is not as big a name as Chris Evans, obviously. He hasn't got his own massive show. But he's a big name. Yeah. It seems like they're, they're clearly signalling to agents, producers, talent, we have lots of money and we're yeah. coming after you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the market they're trying to reach, you know, they're not trying to reach a Chris Evans audience. They're trying to reach a, a sort of very influential, affluent, um, you know, Times-reading audience. I think John Pienaar is a great get from that point of view. It, it really gives you the gravitas. And I think you're absolutely right. It sends a signal to others that this is a safe brand to work with, that, mm. this is a, that this is a serious enterprise, you know. But that only gets you so far. They will have to prove that the programming lives up to the hype. So that's the next challenge they have.
2: Okay, let's get linguistic because uh, Irish broadcaster, RTE has just launched an original podcast series in five languages, Steve.
3: Really interesting move. Uh, we saw last year Wondery, who are the major US producers of, of lots and lots of hits, announced that they were turning a number of their hits into... In, they were sort of reversioning them, basically, into other languages. Um, I certainly know there are moves afoot with a number of different companies, particularly looking at the Sp- uh, the Spanish language audience, which after English is, is like the next great marketplace that I think everyone can see happening. Uh, and obviously uh, the other... Uh, the other two marketplaces that are potentially really interesting but but pose particular challenges are India and China because obviously of, of the of the scale. So uh, you know I think this is su- super ambitious and uh, anything that has ambition in the podcast space is to be applauded because it's such a fast moving space. Have you translated any of your shows? We haven't yet, and we have had people approaching us about Spanish language. So we you know we you know we have had some some discussions there. Um, but I certainly think for our shows and what we do, it's absolutely on the agenda. I would I would imagine. Sometime in the next, well, I don't want to put a time period on it, but you know, yes, I mean, it's definitely a live, com- live conversation for us. It's very
2: difficult to do, though, is and the BBC had this recently with Tunnel Twenty Nine, which was about digging a tunnel under the Berlin Wall, and it was a Green brilliant, Wall.
3: brilliant podcast,
2: brilliant podcast. But the way they did that was basically got an actor yeah. to reread the transcript,
3: translated from German into English. I mean that's expensive isn't it Well I I think you're getting too fixated on the yeah. logistics of it I think I think really the correlation is think about t- TV and movies where obviously loads of shows are either uh Redubbed um, or remade for a different market, I think it's exactly the same mentality here. Good stories are good stories, and and they will translate across different languages because people love great stories. I should say that
2: the show we're talking about is called The Nobody Zone. Uh, It's a co-production between RTE's documentary On One and Denmark's third-year production, and it features the confession tape of an Irish serial killer, but in five languages, English, Danish, Spanish, German, and Irish.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds fascinating. I I will say, I think i think it's great to do podcasts in multiple languages and i think it's actually it's actually a pretty efficient way of doing it um because if you've got great content um rather than creating five different podcasts for different marketplaces we can why not just translate it i will say in agency land we often talk about trans creation rather than translation because you have to be a little bit careful that if you just literally take content created for one marketplace and linguistically translate it even correctly to another marketplace you can miss the things that make it resonate that make it right that make it culturally fit so um for any other podcast considering that move i would say think about not just a linguistic translation but is there a cultural translation that you need to make are there contexts to the language and to the uh, to the way the story unfolds that you need to think about for the audience that you're reaching um so it isn't necessarily just as simple as as a straightforward translation in this case it, it may or may not be but i think you know i would just be wary of going down the route of one size fits all podcast creation think about who you're talking to
2: yeah, I'd be interested in the casting as well. I'd love, I'd love to find the Spanish me to be me across all my shows. I'd just be really interested. Uh, okay, it's there like is Spanish just,
1: Buzz Lightyear. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there is just time to squeeze in our legendary media quiz. That's the enthusiasm we like. Hurrah! Uh, in an interview with Guardian media editor and friend of the show, Jim Waterson, this week, head of the Commons Culture Select Committee, Julian Knight MP, said the BBC was losing the battle to stop decriminalisation of the licence fee, but. He also let slip something fascinating about the corporation, which is how many Julians there are in the BBC newsroom. Knight, himself a former BBC journo, said, and I quote, I'd never met anyone else called Julian until I worked at the BBC, and there were five others on my floor. So, in honour of all the BBC Julians, this week we're going to ask (laughs) you to identify three Julians who've worked for the BBC in a game we're calling Which Julian is Which?, Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. So, Karen, you will say... Karen. And Steve, you will say... Steve. Got it. Let's Julian. Here's Julian number one. Which Julian presented on the World Service for more than 25 years and was last heard on Newsday until his death last year? Which Julian am I?
3: No, I don't know.
1: (laughs) I'm desperately thinking of all the Julians I can think of and I... Can't think of any. <laughs> uh, it was
2: Julian, Keane, Julian uh,
1: Keane,
2: whose career took him around the world. I'm the-
1: so sorry, Julian, for your <laughs> late lamented parting. Uh,
2: for the BBC's French service all the way through to the newsroom programme. Here's Julian number two. Which Julian stepped down from the BBC Radio Solent breakfast show in December after more than 20 years? Clue, he shares a name with our former Deputy Prime Minister. Who now works for Facebook. Come on.
1: <laughs> Julian Clegg?
2: Clegg? Buzzing with your name when you oh, know Karen. the answer. Karen edged it. Yes, Karen.
1: <laughs> Julian Clegg? It is
2: indeed Julian Clegg uh, who announced on air that his last show on the station uh, was going to be last year on the 5th of December. And here is Julian number three. Which Julian has been part of BBC Radio since
3: 1985? Steve. Steve. Julian Warwicker. yes, uh, who I used to work with uh, 25 years ago. Okay, well, Lo- is... lovely man. Not there is fair. <laughs> there isn't a tie break, so can you
2: name some credits of Julian Warwicker to edge you ahead?
3: Oh well, uh, definitely. Well, uh, five, five, uh, Radio Five Drive, yes, um, it, BBC News. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sort of struggling Any, a bit after the any uh, uh, Has he done any answers? Yeah, 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 yet? yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, any answers? Uh, you and yours. Last
2: words. It's been around. Apparently, I hear as well from people who. Do BBC training courses. That his is the one to go to as well on how to interview people.
3: Well, I mean, all I can say is uh, uh, I was a I was a baby when I was uh, when I was working on Radio Five Drive, which was. You know which he was presenting, and he was an absolute gent. He was a really lovely man and always had time for everybody in terms of trying to help them.
2: There we are, top Julian. Uh, Steve, you are the winner. Congratulations. Uh, That is it for today. My thanks to my non-Julian guests, Karen Robinson and Steve Ackerman. If you like what we're up to here on The Media Podcast and want to help us keep doing it, then do consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. You can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, goodbye. Okay, let's (laughs) let...
1: Can we leave that in? (laughs)